we're going to read a lot of scripture today. And I got to tell you, this is an awesome story. Like, I don't, I don't, it doesn't really matter what like genre of literature or movie or whatever you are into. I'm not going to lie. There's not a lot of romantic comedy in this, <laughs> in this one today, but there is action and there is hubris and there is rise and there is fall and there is intrigue and there's all kinds of stuff going on. But like lots of ancient uh, works, the names are difficult to keep straight. And one of the biggest challenges of our day is going to be just going, who is that guy? And why have I never met somebody named Ahithophel before? Um, there's good reason why you haven't met somebody. You have met people named David and you have not met somebody named Ahithophel before. Um, so I think I would like to start just like, you know, when you, you go to a play and in, in the playbill, the characters are like lined out for you and it tells you a little bit of who they are. So before you see the story, you can get the names and, and the relationships and all that straight. I thought that'd be a good thing to do today. So we're going to cover like two and a half chapters of the Bible. I'll read as fast as I can, I promise. And, uh, and it's a good story. We won't do a whole lot more than just read the story, make a comment or two along the way and try to connect some dots as far as what God is doing in ancient Israel as he, and remember, what we're always headed for is the Messiah. David is this king that God has promised. A king like David will be on the throne forever, and we're seeing the kingdom kind of fall apart and kind of come back together. And the whole time we're going, as God is doing work in Israel, where's the Messiah coming? Jesus is the point of the whole Bible. So let's Go through, in your notes, we don't usually do this, but in your notes, in your bulletin, there's a list of names. And I'd like to start today by just telling you who these, who these people are. So as we read, um, we're pretty clear. Let's start with an easy one. Have you heard of David? Okay, good, good. We're off to a good start. David today is the fleeing king. You remember that his son Absalom has gone and taken four years sitting at the gate going, oh man, I wish somebody could help you with your dispute, but my dumb dad doesn't have anybody to help. If I was king, I would sure help you. So he's been doing that for four years, then he takes off uh, in kind of semi-exile again, rallies the troops, and he is now, we're going to see him today, march into Jerusalem. So David is the king that is God's man. God has anointed David. God has called David. David has failed. And one of the questions we're asking over and over in scripture, this is just as God enters into covenants with people and the people don't hold up their end of the argument. One of the things we're always asking is, will God be faithful if people aren't? Are God's promises sure and true even if the people don't hold up their end of the deal. So David has not held up his end of the deal. He has been sinful in lots of ways that we have chronicled in this room over the past weeks. And yet, David is the anointed king. And until God says, I've taken that kingdom from you and given it to somebody else like he did with Saul, David is the king. And we are today watching him flee from the capital, from the palace, and if we were, you know, seeing this story happen uh, in front of our eyes, we would go, what does that mean for the covenants? What does that mean for us in the eyes of God? Okay, you all, so you know David, you also know Absalom. This is the rebel son. You know, when we, when we meet Absalom, he was a man of anger and revenge. Something terrible had happened to his sister Tamar. It was his brother Amnon's fault. 
he spent two years devising a plot to murder his brother Amnon. So in, in human eyes, uh, everything that Absalom does, like any good villain, like he's got good motivation, you can kind of put yourself in Absalom's spot and go, I get why he's doing this. And yet he's never a man of mercy. He's never a man of grace. He's never a man that seeks the Lord. Rather, he's a man of anger and revenge and vengeance. And we're going to, as David, God's man, walks out of the palace, Absalom's going to walk in. You remember Joab. Joab is David's general, and we'll come up with his name over and over today. Joab is, a, is an interesting character. Joab is brutal and expedient. He manipulated David into bringing Absalom back to Jerusalem. We talked about that last week because he thought it would be good for the nation. So he's going to trick David into bringing Absalom back, but Today, in the middle of, ver- of chapter 18, we'll see that Joab is the one who kills Absalom. So how does the same guy say, man, we need to bring Absalom back into, the, into Jerusalem, like three chapters later is the guy that sticks a knife into Absalom's heart. You go, how is that possible? And you go, come on, you know how that's possible. One of them seemed like a good idea to him at one point, and the other one seemed like a good idea to him at another point. Joab does, through his eyes, what he thinks is expedient and right. And he's loyal to David, but he has a lot of dirt on David. He's been there for all of David's mistakes. He's been the the henchman. He's covered things up. So he serves David, but you kind of get the feeling as we read the story today that he's sort of tired of palace drama. He just wants to do what a good military man knows how to do, just solve problems quickly. So then there's Abishai. Oh, there's one you hadn't heard before. Abishai is Joab's brother, and and we're going to run into him pretty soon. Uh, Abishai shares Joab's sense of certainty. uh, Abishai looks at a situation and goes, I got it, let's kill him, Um, which is a very Joab kind of thing to do. So he shares Joab's kind of sense of certainty, also Joab's lack of mercy. There's a guy that doesn't really matter very much in in palace politics. He's kind of this villager guy named Shammai that we're going to run into. Uh, Shammai, the son of Gera, it will say. And Shammai lives in a place called Baharim outside of Jerusalem. And we'll show you a map of that here in a second. And as David is fleeing the city, Shammai is going to pelt David with dirt clods and insults. One time when I was a kid, uh, I stood, I, I hid, my parents aren't in, in town today, so I can tell the story. I hid in our garden in the front yard, and as, as tr- cars were going by, me and my buddy would just throw dirt clods at them, you know? And I think of that every, it turns out people don't like that. <laughs> um, yeah, we got good talkings too. Um, um, but this is, this, is, this is exactly who Shammai is gonna be. He's going to be kind of, the narrator puts him in the story. And again, this all happened. This is history. We also have to ask, why did the narrator tell it this way? Lots of things happen. Why, was, why is the story written like this? And Shammai is going to kind of stand for every disenfranchised person that suffered under David. Like, like Shammai's had it with David too. And now that David's getting what's coming to him in Shammai's eyes, he's going to throw some dirt clods. You know? You've, have you felt that? Like, you know, you ever want to just pick up dirt clod and be like, yeah, and another thing. Okay, so that's Shammai. Then there is this very influential man um, named Ahithophel. Say it with me. Ahithophel. There you go. Just say it like it's spelled. That's not any more helpful. <clears throat> and this Ahithophel has been David's trusted counselor. It said, there's a line that says, Ahithophel, it was like talking 
uh, it was like God talking to David. He was this trusted counselor, always gave great advice, but he has joined the rebellion, the rebellion with Absalom. And one of the big ideas that's not necessarily obvious as you're walking through the book is why would he do that? Why would he turn coat and, and, and serve Absalom instead of David? Well, 2 Samuel 23, uh, we're not going to get all the way to 23 today, I'm sorry. Uh, but in 2 Samuel 23, we're told that Ahithophel has a son named Eliam. In 2 Samuel 11, back when we were there, when we first met Bathsheba, we learned that she is the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Did you just get chills? Did you, did you, did you see what just happened? Ahithophel is not only David's advisor, he's Bathsheba's grandpa. And one of the, I don't know if it's one of the big ideas, but it's something that just more and more as I just read this story this week, I was like, this is a civil war. Make no mistake, this is a civil war. It's also a family war. Sin doesn't just break up nations and cultures. Sin breaks up families. So most likely the scenario um, is that in his sin with Bathsheba, David had, had ruined Ahithophel's granddaughter's marriage and murdered his grandson-in-law. So whether or not Ahithophel had been plotting against David for some time or if, or if he sees the events unfold and thinks, this turkey has it coming, I'm going with Absalom. Well, I don't know. But in chapter 15, verse 31, David finds out that Ahithophel is staying in Jerusalem and has changed his allegiance to Absalom. And, and David prays, which at this point of the story is a nice change of pace that David thinks to pray. And uh, and he, what he prays is that God would cause Ahithophel to give Absalom bad advice. He knows the kind of gravitas that Ahithophel's words have in the palace. All right, one more. There's a guy named Hushai. 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 It's a way to remember. Um, we, we met, I don't even know who that was. I can't remember. Um, we, met, we met Hushai in 2 Samuel, or we meet him in 2 Samuel 15, 32, right after David prays that God would kind of thwart Ahithophel's advice to Absalom. And we, when we meet him, he has torn his clothes. He's put dirt on his head. He is uh, another advisor in the palace, and he remains loyal to David. He can't believe what's going on. He's torn up about it. He's sad that David is on the run, um, and he wants to help. David, I'll go anywhere with you. And David, shrewdly, led by God, we'll have to wrestle with that kind of thing as we go, um, sends Hushai back to the palace and says, why don't you go be a fake advisor to Absalom? Why don't you go and see if you can't cause some trouble, especially if that really great counselor who might hate my guts, Ahithophel, if he makes a plan, why don't you see if you can undermine that plan? You already see the, the results of sin. Like sin makes things complicated. It creates barriers. It drives people away. Sin causes death. Sin causes death in life. Sin causes death of relationships. Sin divides. Sin always divides. And it is divided in all kinds of ways. So let's pick up the story in the middle of chapter 16, but, but I want to tell you what we're looking for as we read. First of all, I want to track, well, I want to track pride and I want to track God at work behind the scenes. So first of all, we're going to be looking for pride in this story. And really, from Genesis to Revelation, and it's kind of what you're looking for, is human pride and how it messes everything up. 
Pride was David's downfall. You think, oh, I thought it was his sin with Bathsheba, or I thought it was that he was a bad dad and passive and dismissive and, 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 and didn't do the things a father was supposed to do. It's all pride. This is what pride looks like. Pride is David's downfall, and humility will be his road back. Pride is Absalom's downfall, and he never gets a chance to repent. By the time we're done with the story today, he'll be dead. Pride is the danger in our lives, and humility is the solution. I don't know what you think is the problem in your life. I don't know what you think the biggest struggles in, in your life as, as you look at the culture, as you look at your family, as you look at your own you know, struggle with sin. I don't know what you think is the biggest problem, but I'll tell you the biggest problem is pride. And the solution is humility. To just, wasn't, isn't this a beautiful song we just sang? Here is my heart. What are the words? Submitted, broken, and I lay it open. Isn't this the only way practically for our lives to get better? is to go to the Lord and say, here's my heart, broken, submitted to you. So pride either ends in humility or humiliation. My brothers and sisters, pride only ends in humility or humiliation. You can decide to end pride in your life and give your heart to God. Submit to Him. Say, here it is, broken and laid open. Or life can do it for you. That might be proverbial wisdom. We might have examples of people who died in their pride, still fat, sassy, and happy, and go, what about him? And I would say, have a little longer view. But I would also say, we have plenty of stories where pride ended in humiliation. So the other thing we're going to kind of be tracking as we go is God at work behind the scenes. You know, this is a portion of Scripture, and it's going to get a little better today, but just, I don't know, as we've been reading, there's just been so little prayer among these people. There's been so little, call the priest and, and get the ephod, and let's go before the Lord. There's been so little sacrifice. There's been so little of God's kingdom. There's been so little talk about God. That maybe even as a reader, you might go, what's happening here? Does God approve of this stuff? Is God causing this stuff when people sin or God's hands off the wheel? How's it go? And we're going to see today that while all of these decisions that people make have consequences, still, God is faithful. If God's promised something, it's going to happen. God will superintend. God will guide even in their unfaithfulness. One of the most profound things, I know I've shared this before, but one of the most profound things anybody ever told me was, uh, was my mother-in-law, as I was having a conversation with her, seeing if it was okay if I marry her daughter. She was iffy, um, <laughs> with good reason. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, in saying that things would be okay, don't worry, you can trust me, um, one of the things I said was, we'll be faithful to God and he'll be faithful to us. And she said, oh, Grant, even when you're not faithful to God, he'll be faithful to you. And we're going to see the faithfulness of God in his covenant keeping, even though David has been a wreck, Absalom is full of pride. So why don't we start with a map 
Uh, welcome to Bible class. Um, I don't know if you can read that, but that's Jerusalem. So ge- I want you to, the geography is going to matter in this story a lot. So that's Jerusalem. That's the palace. That's when we see Absalom with the counselors. That's where David is fleeing from. We're going to, and the story picks up uh, in Bahurim, which is just right. Is that the next slide? Um, Okay, well, we'll get, we'll get there uh, after this one. Let me read it to you, and then I'll show you Baharim. So as, as, David, uh, as King David, I'm in chapter 16, verse 5. As King David came to Baharim, a man came out of the village cursing them. It was Shammai, son of Gera, from the same clan as Saul's family. And he threw stones at the king and the king's officers and all the mighty warriors who surrounded him. Get out of here, you murderer, you scoundrel, he shouted at David. The Lord is paying you back for all the bloodshed in Saul's clan. You stole his throne, and now the Lord has given it to your son Absalom. At last you will taste some of your own medicine, for you are a murderer. Now, look. He's not exactly right on all of this stuff, but he ain't wrong either. And he's hurt. And he's following David, throwing stones and dirt clods, and shouting these insults. And as he says this, this thing about um, from the uh, that King David has like the, the great murder in Saul's family, it's funny. Commentators look at that and go, you know, he could be talking about a few different incidents. <laughs> There was a lot of bloodshed between these, between these two clans, between David and Saul. But he's mad, and he sees David's pain as great justice. Let me show you where Bahrim is. Uh, so it's just right there. In fact, the red circles uh, you know, show, make it look like it's even farther apart. It's just as David is getting out of town. And you think about where David is in this part of the story fleeing his palace because his son is trying to, has already usurped him as king and is trying to murder him. And David, you think about what emotions, just as he's heading out of town, he's not been on a walk for three days. This is just as he and his loyal people are, are leaving town. And, and right there, there's this just, you know, this jerk on the other side, and, and it, the, it, when you kind of map out the geography, he's like on another side of a ravine, so the dirt clods can, can like go, but they can't really get him, right? He's just like at, at a spitting distance, hurling insults, and we get to see how is David going to respond to this, and I think we get a window into David's heart because he's the king. I mean, he can't let some peasant insult him that, like that, Right? At least Abishai, you remember Abishai? Abishai doesn't think so. Look what comes next. Abishai's got an idea. Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Abishai, son of Zer- uh, sorry, Zeruiah, demanded, let me go over and cut off his head. Oh, it's, it's one way to... I mean, it's solve, solve this particular problem. I think, yeah, there's a lot of Joab and his brother. Um, <laughs> the, no, said the king, who asked your opinion, you sons of Zeruiah? If, if you want to just use that as your comeback for the comment section. Who asked your opinion, you sons of Zeruiah? If the Lord has told him to curse me, who are you to stop him? You know, there's really no indication that God is the one prop, prompting uh, Shemai here. In, in, in fact, dirt clods, rocks, and insults are not typically what God sends people to, to participate in. And we're going to see even in just a minute, David 
Although that's what came out of David's mouth, there's more going on than that. David realizes that this guy's not handling things in the right way. This is certainly not a prophet. It doesn't remind you at all of like Nathan coming before David to correct him or anything like that. This is not a prophet coming to speak on the behalf of God. Rather, this is a mad villager who sees his opportunity to pile on the king that he doesn't like. But even in that, David sees God's hand in it. We might even say that God is using Shammai in spite of Shammai. Maybe this isn't a case of God sending a prophetic word, but rather this is a case of David having a heart that is beginning to listen, that is beginning to evaluate. The pride is melting. I mean, can you imagine this walk? I imagine on this walk out of the palace, out to the wilderness to who knows where, I guess we'll just go camp at the Jordan River and see what happens. You've got a couple options. You either go, boys, we ride tonight. Absalom thinks he can take back what's mine. We're going to get him. I'm God's man. Or you spend some time going, how did we get here? What happened to where my boy wants me dead and the kingdom is not in my hands and even Ahithophel, my trusted advisor, stayed back with Absalom. And you know, every once in a while, you're going to find somebody like Shammai standing at a stone's throw away, throwing some rocks and insults at you. And you can either decide, how do they do that? I'm righteous. And start plotting your revenge. Or you can even go, God, is there anything here for me? Is there anything that I need to be listening to? Should I have a heart that's humble enough to go, man, I might even have empathy for this idiot? <laughs> Watch David calm down the troops and begin to take responsibility for the place he's in. Verse 11, Then David said to Abishai and to all the servants, My own son's trying to kill me. Doesn't this relative of Saul have even more reason to do so? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to do it. Interesting. Hang on to that. Like the Bible is, you got to think about this stuff. Watch this. The Lord has told him to do it, and perhaps the Lord will see that I'm being wronged. Well, how did those things go together? If God told him to do it, how are you being wronged? But on this humiliating walk, it's where David is. He looks and goes, man, I kind of feel like I deserve this. I don't think this guy's right, but I have a, I have a heart that's open. The pride is starting to melt away, and humility is taking its place. And then watch the empathy. Um, so and perhaps the Lord will see that I'm being wronged and will bless me because of the curses today. So David and his men continued down the road and Shammai, and he just kept it up, kept pace with them on a nearby hillside, cursing and throwing stones and dirt at David. And the king and all who were with him grew weary along the way, so they rested when they reached the Jordan River. So David says, look, my own son wants to get me. It makes sense to me that this guy might hate my guts too. I don't think he's right, but maybe God's trying to tell me something. And I wonder if we could go the, grow the kind of humility that instead of when anything comes at us, our, our, our instant reaction is to respond in kind and be sure we don't get treated that way and, and well up with self and pride, but instead go, man, is God trying to show me something? Maybe this is just a dummy with dirt clots. But I understand why he's mad. Maybe there's something here for me. 
David goes, look, he suffered. Let's take this as an opportunity to not retaliate, but show mercy. And not only that, but David decides, I'm going to let God be my judge. Maybe God will look at this and, and he'll see that I'm insulted and God will bless me some other day. So instead of fighting his own battle, he decides to let God fight his battle. And that's when David's doing well. Always, when David is making all his own choices, when David is just doing all his own thinking, it's never going well. When David's pride um, uh, lessens and he begins to say, I'm going to go back to letting God fight the battles, that's when David's successful. My brothers and sisters, let's try it. Instead of taking everything into our own hands, if we go, ah, maybe I'm being wronged right now, but maybe God will see it and bless me later. Maybe I'm going to let God fight this battle. Pride has caused the trouble. Humility before God is the path out of the trouble. All right, so there's this great, like, meanwhile, back at Wayne Manor kind of, kind of uh, transition in the, in the scriptures. In verse 15 to 23, just let me sum up for you. Absalom arrives in Jerusalem. He's gathered troops. You remember, he's gone out. He's gone, hey, everybody, I'm the king now because I said so. Who wants to march with me? And they were like, oh, David hasn't been treating us good. Let's go. Let's go with Absalom. So um, Hushai, David's confidant, arrives. Remember, he's like the, the palace spy counselor guy. And he goes to Absalom with a cryptic greeting. It's great. He goes to Absalom. He goes, hey, Absalom, long live the king. Long live the king. Absalom's so full of pride, he goes, he means me. I don't think he does. But you see again... Absalom's pride and David's pride starting to melt. Humiliation is leading to humility. So Absalom settles in and literally turns to Ahithophel and says, so what should I do next? That's a weird thing for the new king to say. I don't know how you feel about that, but I would hope the guy who has just rallied an army so he can overtake the palace has a plan. He Look, this is big. He wants power, but he's got no plan. Man, that's human frailty. He wants to be the man. He wants power. He wants dad out. He wants to sit on the throne. But then he gets there and he goes, so what should we do? And Ahithophel tells him, well, your dad left 10 concubines to take care of the palace. This is going to be icky and gross. You ready? He goes, why don't you, uh, why don't you go sleep with all of them? Yeah, I know. It's gross. I know. It's, it's gross and it's sinful. It's even sinful by their standards because this was his dad's... Like if we would get over the fact... By the way, uh, polygamy worked in the Bible exactly zero times. There's a lot of it there. It never made anybody's life better. It's always a sign of decline and fall. Um, and, but even by their twisted rules, you can't sleep with your dad's concubines. <laughs> like that's clearly against the rules. But you got to admit, in like a... Like, empire moving chess match it's kind of a power move and so absalom sets a tent up on the palace roof oh did you get chills again what do we know about that palace roof that's where david was when he gazed upon bathsheba and so it's like the author the narrator again is telling us meet the new boss same as the old boss new king same pride same lust, same power. So, 
Let's pick up the story in chapter 17. Now Ahithophel urged Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men to start after David tonight. I'll catch up with him while he's weary and discouraged. And he and his troops will panic and everyone will run away and I will kill only the king. I love how he doesn't say David. He goes, I'll kill only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride returns to her husband. After all, this is only one man's life that you seek. Then you will be at peace with all the people. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. And you know, Ahithophel does have a good plan. But man, Ahithophel really wants David dead. You see, he's not messing around. He's like, hey, I got an idea. Now that you slept with all your dad's concubines, let's go kill him. There's some bloodlust in this guy's heart. But it was a good plan. You think about it. We'll, we'll talk about it again in a minute, but this was, again, an empire-building kind of talk. This was an excellent strategy. But then Absalom, in verse 5, but then Absalom said, bring Hushai the archite, and let us see what he thinks about this. And when Hushai arrived, Absalom told him what Ahithophel had said. Then he asked, what's your opinion? Should we follow Ahithophel's advice? If not, what do you suggest? I mean, don't you go, I see God's work here. This is exactly what David prayed for. Hey, why don't you go back to the palace and maybe God will use you to, to thwart the advice of Ahithophel. This is exactly what David prayed for. But don't you also see Absalom's pride? Absalom's just got great advice. And I don't know if it's like, I don't want this guy telling me what to do all the time. Or I'm not listening to my dad's advisor all the time. Or what it is. But Absalom wants a second opinion. There's not enough glory in this story for Absalom. You'll remember that Hushai is loyal to David. It's tough to understand why Absalom didn't just follow Ahithophel's advice. But certainly has something to do with his pride. There's a new sheriff in town. We're going to do things the way dad did. I'm not listening to dad's elders and advisors, but also certainly there's something to do with this is what David prayed for. God's working behind the scenes. And I think in the Old Testament, one of the things that makes us struggle sometimes is how intricately people's decisions and God's work go together. And you kind of have to wrestle with this. God has a plan. And we say things like, well, God has a plan, or there's a reason this happened. God has a plan, but if you are sinful, you will suffer for it. Are you with me? God has a plan, and if you will humble yourself and walk with God's plan, God's plan is not for you to follow your heart. God's plan is for you to submit to him and do what he tells you to do. So, watch Hushai uh, play on Absalom's fear and pride. By the way, pride usually comes with fear. It's almost always that you don't have the confidence in who you are. You don't know how loved you are by God. That you've got to have things done your way instead of just going, like David said, you know, maybe God will see that I'm being wronged. So, well, Hushai replied, verse 7, replied to Absalom, this time Ahithophel has made a mistake. You know, your father and his men, they are mighty warriors. Right now, they are as enraged as a mother bear who has been robbed of her cubs. And remember that your father is an experienced man of war. See how he keeps referring to your dad. Oh, your dad's real good. Your dad's real strong. You should be afraid of your dad. Um, he won't be spending the night among the troops. He's probably already hidden in some pit or cave. Oh, your dad's laying in wait, man. 
And when he comes out and attacks and a few of your men fall, there will be panic among your troops and the word will spread and Absalom's men are being slaughtered. Then even the bravest soldiers, though they have hearts like a lion, will be paralyzed with fear for all Israel knows what a mighty warrior your father is and how courageous his men are. Well, you know, your dad, he's tough. He's got to be, he's got to be super mad at you right now probably laying in wait for you right now. I think what you should do is call the army all the way from Dan to Bathsheba, it's gonna, uh, he says. And, uh, and by the way, Dan to Bathsheba is like all the way north to all the way south. That would be like somebody going, gather the army from sea to shining sea. You know, like, go get them all. Let's bring them all. Not Hawaii and Alaska, just sea to shining sea. <laughs> And then your army will be as numerous as the sand. Watch. He says, I recommend that you mobilize an entire army of Israel, bringing them from as far away as Dan in the north and Beersheba in the south. That way you will have an army as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And I advise that you personally lead the troops. Oh, dude, he's just it's like, it's like cupcakes. Just end this. You know, just, just feeding him what he wants to hear. When we find David, we'll follow, follow on him like dew that falls on the ground, and neither he nor any of his men will be left alive. And if David were to escape into some town, you will have all Israel here at your command. Then we can take the ropes and drag the walls of the town into the nearest valley until every stone is torn down. And this is what Absalom wants to hear. Why don't you, big man, go call the army from everywhere? You'll be like the sands of the seashore. Not only that, you should ride out in front. You should be leading this great army. And if your dad tries to get away and runs into a town, we'll knock down the town. You're the man, Absalom. This is what we should do. And Absalom goes, I like this guy. (laughs) Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, Hushai's advice is better than Ahithophel's, for the Lord has determined to defeat the council of Ahithophel, which really was better with a better plan, so he could bring disaster on Absalom. So again, we say, is Absalom really making choices? Yeah. Is God really at work? Yeah. Do you see Absalom's pride? It's interesting that the elders of in the palace, they liked Ahithophel's plan. But the men of Israel liked Hushai's plan. Like, when the testosterone got involved, you know, when it was like, yeah, let's get them! They liked the, the sands, the army liked the sands and the seashore. The, the older guys, the wisdom, said, I like to just go get the one guy. But that's not what happens. So then there's a section where Hushai tells a couple of priests who remain loyal to David the plan, and they sneak off to warn David. So David has been camping. Is there the, the map of the Jordan? Uh, okay, there's one more map before that that I, I skipped over. Right down in the, in the corner there, if you see the red line. There you go. Thank you very much, Emily. Um, that's where David is camping at this point. And Hushai tells a couple of priests who remain loyal to David the plan. They sneak off to warn David. Um, but somebody sees uh, them leave the town and tells Absalom. So Absalom and this guy go looking for the two priests in Baharim, and the priests have been hiding. Uh, they've been hidden by a woman there who sends Absalom on a wild goose chase. And the priests get away to warn David, and David takes the warning and heads across the Jordan River and settles his troops up in 
Manaheim, which is up there. There's a couple good things about this area. First of all, there's friends. He runs into three like local governor guys who are allies and give him food and shelter and, and, and feed and, and, and give wine to the men who are tired of walking. Also, this is a strategic location. It's deep in a valley. It's near the forest of Ephraim, um, which is just above there, and that's where the battle's going to happen. So Absalom goes. He, uh, 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 well, Absalom goes back to the palace. Ahithophel sees that Absalom isn't listening to him. Maybe he sees the writing on the wall. He knows the plan's not going to work. He probably knows David's going to win. So he goes back to his house, puts his affairs in order, and kills himself, ends his own life. Do you see how sin wrecks everything? We could talk about this being an act of pride. We can talk about this being an act of hurt. But do you see how pride and leadership, especially, wrecks everything? So the battle's set. Absalom marches his army across the Jordan with a general named Amasa. Amasa is both his cousin and Joab's cousin. It's a family fight. Starting in 18, verse 1. David now mustered the men who were with him. That's big. A lot of commentators make a big deal about that. David's finally doing stuff. Joab's not just hauling David around anymore, but David's finally started to take command. Now David mustered the men who were with him and appointed generals and captains to, them, to lead them. He sent the troops out in groups of three, placing one under Joab, one under his brother Abishai, uh, the son of Zeruiah, and one under Ittai, the man from Gath. The king told his troops, I'm going out with you. But his men objected strongly. You must not go, they urged. For if we have to turn and run, if even half of us die, it will make no difference to Absalom's troops. They will be looking only for you. You're worth 10,000 of us, and it's better that you stay here in the town and send help if we need it. Well, if you think that's the best plan, I'll do it, the king answered. So he stood alongside the gate of the town as all the troops marched out in groups of hundreds and thousands. Man, do you notice David's willingness to listen to good counsel as opposed to Absalom's arrogance, pride, and humility? Pride is the way to trouble. Humility is the way out of it. And this feels more like the David we remember. He's leading. He's not passive, but he's also listening. He's not arrogant. Verse 5 says, And the king gave the command to Joab and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake deal gently with young Absalom. And all the troops heard the king give this order to his commander. So I don't think this was a private, hey guys, would you save Absalom if you can? Rather, this was everybody lined up at the city gates in groups of hundreds and thousands. David's going to give the final speech. Let's go get him. And he says, hey guys, if you find Absalom for my sake, please don't kill him. David still doesn't want Absalom dead. Maybe this is love. Maybe this is guilt. But either way, the narrator wants us to know that David made this very clear. So, the, so verse 6, the battle began in the forest of Ephraim, and the Israelite troops were beaten back by David's men. There was a great slaughter that day, and 20,000 men laid down their lives. You know, we talk, we're, we're talking about like Absalom died, or is David going to die, or all this, but can you see the carnage? Like sin leads to death. Innocent people, faithful people die when leaders are, instead of humility, have pride and arrogance. It was a great slaughter that day. 20,000 men laid down their lives, and the battle raged all across the countryside. And this is interesting. And more men died because of the forest than were killed by the sword. By the yeah, by the forest. Absalom has the numbers, but Joab knows what he's doing. 
David and Joab have been winning battles like this since Absalom was in diapers. They lived in the wilderness. They were on the run from Saul. They've seen battles like this before. Absalom most likely grew up in the palace, and he has arrogantly led his army into a battle they aren't prepared for. You know, it's interesting, the forest. If we were reading through ancient eyes, what would we think about that? The forest killed more men than, than the army. Wouldn't we say, God is doing something. This is not just David, the superior king or general, but rather, God is on his side. Absalom's pride, he's not ready for this. He's got the wrong tactics. And God's invisible hand, both at work. So during the battle, Absalom happened to come upon David's men, and he tried to escape on his mule. I need to get that guy a horse. Man, I know why he lost. He's out there in the forest on a mule. Mule? How do you even make the mule run? He can't make a mule do anything. He tried to escape on his mule, but as he rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree, his hair got caught in the tree. And his mule kept going and left him dangling in the air. I'm glad you like that. And one of David's men saw what had happened and told Joab, I saw Absalom dangling from a great tree. Now look, I believe this is historically true. I think this, this absolutely happened. But you couldn't write this with more poetic uh, justice than if it happened in Narnia. Do you remember when we met Absalom? What do we know about him? He's the best-looking guy, and he's got a heck of a head of hair. Tons of pride over the hair. Every year he'd cut his hair and he'd weigh it five pounds of hair this year. His hair, and I know how goofy this sounds, is a symbol of his pride. Hey, Absalom, why don't you cut your hair before you ride your mule through the forest? But it's his pride. He is all about him. And this is the thing that is going to get tangled in the forest, which stands as the invisible hand of God. It's pride. Pride's the problem. So Joab, who still is Joab, says, What? demanded Joab. You saw him there and didn't kill him? I would have rewarded you with 10 pieces of silver and a hero's belt. He's like, I would have promoted you. And the guy goes, I would not kill the king's son even for a thousand pieces of silver. And the man replied to Joab, we all heard the king say to you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, please spare young Absalom. And if I had to betray the king by killing his son, and the king would certainly find out what, uh, who did it, you yourself would be the first to abandon me. Look at Joab, enough of this nonsense. Joab said, and he took three daggers and plunged them into Absalom's heart as he dangled, still alive in the great tree. Ten of Joab's young armor bearers then surrounded Absalom and killed him. Man, if Joab's going to have anything done, he's going to have to do it himself. Joab's really comfortable disobeying David's direct orders. Sin causes all kinds of division. Joab's on David's side. But Joab's had about enough of David. And Joab's going to do what's good for the kingdom instead of listening to God's man, David. Everyone knew what David wanted, but Joab thought he knew what the kingdom needed. Maybe the lesson here is something about the consequence of poor leadership. David has turned a corner. He's been humbled, and he's on his way back to being the man after God's own heart, but Joab still knows an awful lot. Maybe still has that letter. 
Joab's a complicated character. On one hand, peace happens immediately. He says, everybody went home. That's great. On the other hand, maybe we got robbed of a story about reconciliation between David and Absalom. Maybe we didn't get to see Absalom grow in humility as David had. We'll never know. That's the thing about narratives. Not a lot of speculation. Just tell us what happened. This is what happened, and this is, David, this is Joab's role in David's life, and, and this role in David's life is not over for Joab. Then Joab blew the ram's horn, verse 16, and his men returned from chasing the army of Israel, and they threw Absalom's body into a deep pit in the forest and piled a great heap of stones over it, and all Israel fled to their homes. So the battle's over, and ironically, exactly what Ahithophel had suggested about David happens to Absalom. We don't have to win this whole war. We just have to get Absalom. Everybody will go home. During his lifetime, Absalom had built, this is verse 18, this is our last, last verse. During his lifetime, Absalom had built a monument to himself in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to carry on my name. Which is interesting because he does have a couple of sons. We just read about them. Um, so maybe they weren't born yet. Maybe they had died. Or maybe Absalom's pride looks at his sons and goes, I better build a monument for myself. He named the monument after himself. You guys want to see the Grant monument? I built it. I named it Grant. What do you think of that? <laughs> and it's known as Absalom's monument to this day. So the man who wanted the throne, the man of vengeance, of anger, ends up in an unmarked grave in the middle of the forest and is remembered only by a rock in the middle of a valley that he set up. Man, a couple of big ideas, and I'll pray for us, and we can sing a final song. If life has brought humiliation, would you be humble? Pride is the enemy. I would even say we have an enemy, a personal enemy. We, Satan is real, but Satan doesn't, Satan doesn't need you to follow him. He just needs you to follow your heart. Pride, self, is exactly the thing that Jesus says we have to die to and get rid of if we are going to follow him. If we have to make some big sweeping observations about many stories in the Old Testament, but especially this one, we would say pride that turns romance into lust that turns righteous anger into vengeance, that turns leadership into power-hungry. Pride is the great destructor. So, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and at the right time, He will lift you up. And if you find yourself in a time of humiliation, if you find yourself in a time where people don't like you and you got three emails this week that made you angry and, you, and you, you're fighting with your neighbor and whatever else it might be, instead of saying vengeance is mine, would you be humble and say maybe God will see that I'm being wronged and he'll remember me? Man, 
There's a lot of problems in this world. And I'm sure we could sit and talk about all the problems that we need to solve. But the enemy is pride. It was for David. It was for Absalom. And the solution is not everybody else getting their act together, but is our humility. The one other big idea, God's promises are sure. And the more, the more submitted to his plans we are, the more love, peace, and joy will increase in our lives. God has a plan. I'm very comfortable saying God has a plan. If bad things are happening in your life and people say, hey, don't worry, God has a plan, they're right. But God's plan does not include your pride. God's plan does not include your sin. And the more submitted to Him you are, the more peace and joy will be a part of your life. It's those who are walking in step with the Holy Spirit that experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God has a plan for you. And that plan includes you humbly submitting yourself, getting rid of your pride, and following Him every day.